This morning our scripture reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 to 6, and I'll be reading from the NIV. So that's 2 Corinthians 4, 4 to 6. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, and indeed. Actually, I'll go ahead and pray. I forgot to do that. So let's pray. Lord, we do ask for your illumination of our hearts, that we might see in our hearts, our mind, hearts, uh, the, the eyes of our hearts would be opened, our minds would be opened, our ears would be opened, and we would understand the way uh, our feet should walk in because of this message we hear today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so in the Christian calendar, the Feast of Epiphany is about the gospel promise for the nations. The Magi come to worship Jesus we're told from the East. So they definitely weren't Jewish. A star of sorts, it leads them to Israel where they come to worship the one who has been born King of the Jews. It's a glimpse of the promise in Isaiah of the kings of the nations of the earth coming to pay tribute to the king who's in Jerusalem. And it's a glimpse of the, the promise made to Abraham, that covenant that Abraham's seed would be a blessing to the nations. Now, in, in some Spanish-speaking countries, at Epiphany, the crash, the nativity scene, it changes a little bit. Um, Jesus is given this tiny little gold uh, uh, crown to wear and put on uh, royal robes. And the Magi, who, who are left out until this point, they arrive in Bethlehem and they complete the manger scene. Now, I like this tradition. Um, in my house growing up, our nativity usually got all set up at once, a few uh, days after Thanksgiving. And it usually stayed out until Christmas um, or until I knocked something over playing soccer in the house, which happened every year. Uh, indeed, this is what my mom said. This is why we can't have nice things. <laughs> so to organize my sermon today, I'll be thinking about the account of the Magi in Matthew 2, and especially the, their dealings with Herod the Great which I'll use to illustrate themes from our passage in 2 Corinthians. So I'm preaching from 2 Corinthians, but the story um, of the Magi and King Herod and the difference between the Magi and King Herod, they're going to be a recurring analogy that I keep coming back to. On the one hand, if there's a person for whom the gospel is veiled, hidden, covered up in some way, you know, it's Herod. His perspective is so limited. Herod would not see himself deposed. Uh, and so he strategically veils his own intentions to go and worship the king. He plots against the shadow of his own projections about what, what is coming in the future. But on the other hand, if there's a group for whom the veil of the gospel is lifted, indeed the, the knowledge is, their knowledge is illuminated by the light of the star and through dreams, it's the Magi. God's transcendent secret is divinely revealed to them, brought to light and made known. So let me read you 
the story of their meeting in Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. So one person calls this a tale of two enemies. But he didn't have in mind that they were enemies of each other, but that they should have a common enemy in Jesus. Now we know Herod was an enemy of Jesus, but so too ought to have been these magi. The magi were from the east, meaning east of Judah, like Assyria and Babylon and Persia, those nations that historically invaded, conquered, and sought to control and subjugate Israel. Prior to Jesus' birth, there are several times in, in Scripture we meet Magi-like figures, uh, such as during the time of the plagues in Egypt and during the time of the Babylonian exile. Advisors to the king, learned in astrology, brought in to interpret dreams, to see into the future, but also dabbling in magic and royal trickery to appear wise. To be clear, wise men is a relative term in the Old Testament. Joseph was indeed wiser than these wise men. Moses was wiser than these wise men. Daniel was wiser than the wise men. God uses the foolishness of the wise men in these stories before he uses his chosen vessel to show up through them. Both groups, the Magi and Herod, they should have been enemies of Jesus. You know, but the funny thing is, they weren't. So how did they come to respond in two totally different ways to the birth of Israel's king? I'll ask that again. How did these two groups, the Magi and Herod, come to respond in two totally different ways to the birth of Israel's king? I believe the most important difference between the Magi and Herod is this, that we read in our passage in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the God of this world blinded the mind, in our passage it says of unbelievers, I'll say of Herod, to keep him from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. If you consider what happens next in the story of Jesus' birth and consider it in our world today, it would be unthinkable. In Matthew 2.16, we learn that Herod learns of, of the, the wise men uh, avoiding him, outwitting him. So in, in chapter 2.16, we read, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time, the time frame he had learned from the Magi. So why did Herod the Great implement this great genocide? This, this is event called the Massacre of the Innocents. What threat did an infant actually pose to him? I'd say not much. He was clinging to his power, defensively positioning himself for a future free of the possibility of being overthrown, nipping the buds, killing the infants to retain his power. Herod the Great was blinded by a perceived threat, blinded by the idolatry of his own positional power. And Herod the Great was blinded to the point of actually cutting off his own line as well. What we don't read in scriptures, but we can fill in through history books, 
is that Herod was driven mad in his fear of being overthrown. Herod's paranoia led him to build a fortress in his palace designed with multiple escape hatches. He was even fearful that his own sons would try to take the throne. So he eventually kills his wife and drowns his sons. Caesar said this of Herod the Great, I would rather be a pig than one of his sons. And who of us can disagree with that? Rather be a pig than one of the sons of Herod the Great. The power that was at work here, the god of this world, an idolatry of power, blinded the mind of King Herod. How could he celebrate the coming of this new king? Now, let's think about the context of, of the Corinthian passage, because Herod's case is a little different than the case of the Corinthian church. We know from topics covered in, uh, by Paul in the Corinthian correspondence that Corinth is a church with some issues a church dealing with factions and divisions, these divisions coming under the names of the so-called super apostles, a church where the rich ate their fill at the Lord's Supper and the poor often left hungry. In fact, Corinth was a city that celebrated wealth and social mobility with the worship of fearsome and powerful deities that reinforced a value of strength and success and honor. Corinth was a city that celebrated traveling orators, speakers of eloquence and earthly wisdom, promising health and wealth and prominence and an escape from suffering. When Paul went to visit them, he couldn't, but he didn't compete with their smooth talking. He didn't come with fine words or prepared speeches. He sought to know nothing, he said, but Christ crucified. Paul says, for those who are perishing, the gospel is veiled. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It's a lot, a lot. I'm going to unpack that. Verse 4. Paul says that, that the Corinthians, they can't see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. They can't see the light of the gospel. And because they can't see the light of the gospel, they can't see the glory of Christ. The light of this gospel, this good news, it's like a lighthouse at sea, a flashlight on a dark path. It's like bringing your phone with its flashlight up to the attic. But even the brightest of flashlights doesn't fix blindness. And that's Paul's point. Because the problem is not in the light, it's in the eyes. In the case of the Corinthians, their blindness is evidenced by their culture that admires worldly wisdom, power, wealth, celebrity. They worship things that are not gods, and they place their stock in promises of idols. But let's compare that for a second with Jesus' call. Jesus' call in the gospel to the rich man was to sell all of his possessions and follow him. He says, your self-security, it keeps you from seeing the poor. But even this illuminating light of wisdom, it, it isn't enough to fix the blindness of this rich man. Jesus's call in the gospel is to put others before oneself. He says, your self-striving keeps you from participating in real community. But this illuminating light, this wisdom, isn't a fix for blindness. You know, it takes an ironic imagination to see in Jesus's teaching that, that death leads to new life. 
that the poor are considered blessed, that the faithful boast in their suffering. It takes an ironic imagination. I think that what the gospel illuminates is the fact that the glory of Christ, the glory of Christ is actually quite unintuitive in a culture that celebrates celebrity and power. The gospel shows us that, that God, the one most deserving of fame and glory, even to, the, uh, even to the point of bearing a cross, he forsakes his own honor for the sake of love. The gospel shows us that God submits himself to execution on a cross. Jesus is nothing like the Greek gods, these embodiments of what the Corinthian culture prized. Indeed, what our own Western culture prizes. If Jesus' call is to a cross, well, that is folly. At least that's what the Corinthians would say. How can knowingly walking towards one's own death be called wise? There's no answer to that question that makes sense when the God of this world has blinded your mind to keep you from seeing the light of the gospel, which is the glory of Christ, the face of God. What makes more sense is Herod's own self-striving, those self-serving actions to hold on to power. In verse 5, Paul says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Christ's sake. Paul says, There's no self-promotion in what I bring. There is no hidden agenda. What we're about is revering Christ as Lord, which means he's proclaimed as master, as sovereign, as king. He's the one who has authority to command us to obedience. His instructions are not like a fortune cookie we would open on New Year's Eve. The Bible isn't like a self-help book. His instructions and our obedience to his lordship are at the heart of worship. For those whose eyes have been opened to see the heart of God in Jesus, our only response is to bring golds, frankincense, and myrrh. For those whose eyes have been opened to see the heart of God in Jesus, our only response is to bring him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And the Magi show us the true posture of worship. To prostrate ourselves in worship as servants of Jesus. To lay at his feet any besetting sins. Anything enthroned in our hearts. As Paul says in another letter, to put away bitterness, envy, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice lay at his feet our gifts, our talents, our resources, anything we can use in service of the king and his already and coming kingdom. As servants, our call is to be like Jesus to the world, in service to the church. So what's the reason we become like servants? I think verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Why are we called to live like wise men with our gifts spread out before the feet of Jesus? Why do we live lives of worship in service, even forsaking our own many kingdoms? I mean, I think it has something to do with illumination. I think it has something to do with God who said, let light shine out of darkness. For those who put their faith in Jesus, God has shown in our hearts 
which means God's done some reconfiguring within us to dethrone the idols that had taken up residence. God has shown us his glory. We've seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And what does that mean? I, I don't know if you've ever imagined God, what he's like, what he looks like. As a kid, um, I'd always imagined he was very bright, that you couldn't even see his face. Um, so it was like, like Moses in the burning bush. Um, I thought even in heaven, looking at God would be something like a mix between looking at Zeus, like this big towering figure about the size of the statue at the Lincoln Memorial, and looking directly at the sun. You know, one of the miracles of the incarnation is that God showed his face, and it was a glory that we could not quite comprehend. It was the sort of glory that some people might confuse with shame and lowliness. Being a nobody in a culture of celebrity, born to a family that couldn't even afford a lamb for Jesus' dedication, and so brought two pigeons. Being a servant in a culture of honor, being criminalized in a culture that uses death to stamp out infants of promise and silence troublemakers. I was, think, I was thinking about this. Do you, did you know that worship is a formative act? That is, it does something to us. And more specifically, it shapes us. The Israelites in the Old Testament were, were said to become hard-hearted and stiff-necked because they worshipped statues. They, they became like the statues who had hard hearts and stiff necks. We become selfish and proud when we enthrone the celebrities of our age in our hearts. The reason we become like servants when we come into worship Jesus is because when light illuminates the scene, we see that, that that's what God looks like. We realize that he took the form of a servant, the form of someone who sweats it out preaching to crowds that are looking for entertainment and food. Someone who valued our lives more than his own and took our sins on himself. We become like servants in worship because worship is a formative act and we become like the things we worship. We were always meant to be image bearers of God and Jesus just shows us what exactly that looks like. How to exercise the king's dominion without a sword without influence, without fame or fortune, how we can be the image of God. So with all that in mind, let me read our passage one more time. In the case of those perishing, to, to, to whom the gospel is veiled, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, within ourselves, with, our, with ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. For God said, let light shine out of darkness. He has shown in our hearts, uh, he, he, he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You know, as I conclude, I want to return to that image of Herod and the Magi. Two approaches to the promise of a new king. The first is an approach where the king would not be disposed of. The second approach are servants who would worship the would-be king. The first is, an is a desperate attempt to snuff out the light before it grows too bright. And the second are the ones that follow a light 
a star, a journey. They make a journey with a light that's already bright. The first is an approach blinded by the so-called gods of this world, of power, of greed, of celebrity, those things that crowd our hearts. The second is an approach that's illumined by the true God, the true God of heaven and earth, who is the only thing that is worthy of worship. I want to challenge us today, as we think about the journey the Magi took, let's walk the the path of the Magi. Let's worship God with joy, because the face of Jesus, this revealed paradoxical glory of God, we can see more easily the God of the universe who is love and who loved us sacrificially. And that his heart is for the nations. Let's keep long in our mind that image of Isaiah, of of kings of the earth coming before the throne of the king of Jerusalem. And I want to invite you to consider today what treasure you would bring along with you on this path that the Magi took. I mean, what is your gold and frankincense and myrrh? And the other side of that is what what do you need to let go of on this path? So that when you reach the king of kings, he can sit enthroned on your heart alone. Let's pray together. Um, Father, we are humbled because you, in your glory, is something unlike we expected and something unlike we see in our world. Um, You love us. Um, even while we are sinners, even while we are at work building our own mini kingdoms and in resistance to your kingdom. Um, I pray today that you would work in our imaginations to think about what it would mean for you to be enthroned alone in our hearts and what it would mean for us to give you a, a gift of real value because you alone are worthy of our praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.